Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of him, or John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but he could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a desert, deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw him departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion for them, 
because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to take them, to make them, rather, and all sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he went, sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when he saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they, wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that Your word is so powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. So we want to grow. We want to be made into mature disciples in an increasing way. We pray, Father, that you would teach us and and accomplish your purposes in that way to make us more like Christ. Speak to your servants now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Jesus is continuing to do the miraculous as he does so well. We've seen so many miracles lately just in the last week or two. We've seen him calm the storm. We've seen him call out a legion of demons and out of a man and deliver a man. We've seen him uh, go and, and, and heal a widow or, or a lady that had an issue of blood and heal her miraculously. We've seen him raise from the dead a 12-year-old little girl. And he's going to continue today. You know, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still ministers. He still heals. He still saves. He still has compassion. He still is moved with compassion all the time. And so we're told in verse 1, that when he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him 
And when the, the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? They say that about sometimes when I'm teaching too, but it's not a good thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And what wisdom is this which is given to him? And what mighty works are performed by his hands? In this, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended by him. So these people, here he's in his own country. He's in, in the area of Galilee there, probably in Nazareth there. And they're astonished. They're astonished at his teaching. They're astonished at his wisdom. They're astonished at his works. And they're familiar with him and his family. Mark mentions his siblings here, uh, there in verse uh, 3. You know, he names them, his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. James wrote the book of James, and Judas wrote the book of Jude there. We're also told he has sisters. Notice it's plural. So there was, a, uh, there was at least seven children in that family. There could have been more because we don't, we're not told how many sisters he had. Could have had five sisters for all we know. <laughs> no idea. Probably not. But there was a huge family. He was part of a big family. He was part of a big family here. I was, I was the seventh one. Talk about not good timing for the most stubborn child in the home, the number seven. And, and you know, it, it's amazing what God does among big families and just the, 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 the type of dynamic that's there because you get to see a lot and you get to experience a lot. So he, we're told here that they were astonished that he named his family here and they knew him well but really, they didn't know him at all, did they? They knew him. They were familiar. They knew he was trained up as a carpenter with, under his, his, his earthly father, Joseph. But they really didn't notice him, notice him or, or, or be able to understand him and get him and be able to recognize and discern him. Notice at the end of verse 3, we're told that they were offended at him. Why? That's the question, right, when you first read it? You just go, why in the world would they be offended at him? Why would they be offended? He's doing great things. What could they criticize that he was doing? You, you'd think if he were doing something that was not good, they could be offended, but he wasn't doing anything that was not good. He was doing everything that was great. And so it's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. We can become so familiar with someone, we can start, especially if they're claiming to be you know, different now. I mean, Jesus was in his public ministry now. He didn't function in that role before the time of his public ministry when it began. So they had, they had related to Jesus in a different way than what they could relate, how they could relate to them, him now. And, and so sometimes when, when that happens in our lives, when we are changed and we come to our family they are relating to us from, a, from all of our history before we came to know Christ. And it's hard for them. And it, it can stumble them as well. Notice what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and, his own, and in his own house. So a prophet has, has honor everywhere he goes except in his own country. This wasn't this wasn't new. This wasn't something that he was saying that was brand new that, that no one ever experienced before because prophets experienced it in, in, his, in the history of the Old Testament and so forth. So with us, as we come to know Christ, 
Sometimes we get stumbled by the fact that everybody's not rejoicing over the fact we become a Christian. There's a lot of newer believers in our, in our church. And there's reaction that's, that family have to this new life. And it's almost as if they'd, you know, they'd rather have us be completely bound by drugs and in rehab and struggling and all this. They'd rather have that, it seems like sometimes, than actually being told that they need to love people and they need to be a servant and they need to be joyful and, they, and we need to be caring about other people. They, they seem to rather have the old person, your B.C., person or, or before Christ, you know, the old, the old version, which is, doesn't exist anymore because we're new creations in Christ, and, and we shouldn't let that stumble us. We should expect that. Jesus experienced that in the sense that they didn't recognize him and they didn't honor him, his own family. We've already went over the fact that his own family, and I'm not saying necessarily his immediate family, but at least relatives thought he, they were concerned that he was going out of his mind because of what he was in the middle of. And then notice the limitations he puts on himself in verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So there was some things that he did, but by and large he, he limited himself because of their unbelief. The people's expectation limited what he did in their midst. And sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God do miracles today? Why don't we see miracles today? First of all, every single Christian is a miracle. So we're, we're, we see miracles all the time when people come to know Christ, first of all. And that's the greatest miracle, right? Because spiritually speaking, we're going to be outliving this, the, the Old Testament, especially in the King James calls it a, you know, a carcass. <laughs> they die, their carcasses died in the wilderness. It's, it's a good word. I feel, I get, the older I get, the more I feel like I have a carcass, <laughs> you know. But we can't limit what the Lord wants to do in our lives. And so, so often we, and that's why he doesn't work the same way in the Gospels. We've been seeing that. He works in so many different ways. And we could get used to him working a certain way in our lives, and he wants to work in our, way, in our lives a di- in a different way, but we're not trusting him for that. We're not believing that he could work differently than he's worked before. He's still going to have that great father's heart. He's going to still do what's best for us. He's still going to do what's best for us, even if we're kicking and screaming against it, much like little kids, you know, when they're being disciplined and trained up, they're fighting against you left and right sometimes. We'll still do that, and, and we'll still fight against it, though. He's always wanting to do what's best for us. But that expression of that might look a little different. So it says in verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. There's really two times that he marvels in the, in the Gospels. This is one of them. Marvel at their unbelief. And then at the centurion that said, my servant's about to die. You don't have to come, Jesus. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Because I'm a man under authority. And I say to one servant, go there. And they'd go. And, and he understood authority and, and honored Jesus with his faith like that. And Jesus marveled at that faith. Wasn't even a Jew. And, and so that was a great object lesson for everyone around, this, this person that had great faith. We just finished seeing Jairus, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, have great faith coming to Jesus, humbling himself at his feet and asking, begging him to save his little 12-year-old daughter's life. We've see the, we just saw the faith of the woman with the issue of blood. She didn't even say, if I just touch Jesus, she said, I don't even have to touch him. If I just touch the hem of his clothing, the least part of his clothing, I know I'll be healed. And 
God honored that faith and he commended her for that. So he wants him, us to honor him with our faith. Not have faith in our faith. Your faith is only as good in the, as, as the object that you place it in. We have to have faith in God. But he's always imploring us and leading us to have more faith and he's, in him because he's stretching us and growing us and how he stretches and grows us is putting us in, putting us in situations where we have to trust him in a greater way. He loves to do that. And it's not comfortable for us, but he loves to do it because he knows that's what's necessary for us. And we're going to see that in the lives of the, the disciples in a little bit. Verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Now this word, send them out, it's the verb form of apostle. It's apostello. But when I had to memorize this word in school, I was like, for he's an apostello, for he's an apostello, you know, you know, and that helped me remember that, that these, this, I, trust me, I'll do any gimmick possible to memorize things when I have to, you know, and, and that helped me, but it means one who is sent out, and he says it gave them power, did you see that? It gave them power, now this isn't the word dunamis that we're familiar with, related to the power, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, this is like a legal uh, like a, a, a king would give authority over, he would, this isn't even a word that anyone uses anymore, but like bequeathed, you know, this power and this authority to go and represent the king. It's a whole different word there. And so he's training them in the sense of going out. Remember, all of this is training for the disciples. I love to see his approach to training and discipling. His whole, remember, he's taking 12 guys. He knows one of them's going to betray him. So really, in reality, he's, Long term, he's thinking 11 guys. If I were starting Christianity, I would choose 5,000 guys. You know, I wouldn't choose, you know, 12 and have one of them know that he's going to betray me and have really 11 guys. But he does that on purpose. And I, and I wouldn't have chosen fishermen. I would have chosen experts in the law. I would have, you know, all these things that man would have done. He chooses people that are not esteemed by the culture. They don't have formal education. They don't have even vocations that people really respect. In fact, Matthew was a tax collector, so they, 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 let's start out having one of my disciples that's going to you know, expand the kingdom of God, be someone that people automatically hate out of the starting gate. Let's do that. You know, He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't have someone come in that has great res, people have great respect for. He didn't call an apostle Paul to be one of the 12. He didn't do that. And so he takes these guys and he puts them in these impossible situations so that they can grow and they can be more dependent upon him because he's not always going to be with them. And he knows that. So he calls them to himself and he's going to send them out. That's the key word for us, is the word out. So there's six teams of two. They're going out and he's dispatching them for his purpose and, and God is wanting to train us up as disciples. Nothing changes. He, doesn't, he hasn't changed how he raises up disciples and, and, and disciples us into maturity. He hasn't changed that since this time. It, it's just that we're, we don't have his physical presence in the sense of him being, but he, he does the same type of thing. He wants us to grow, and he wants us to be able to have the maturity to be other-centered, to give out, to serve, to go out there, the church, the, the word literally means the called out ones. The church gathers in this building. This, we call it the church because it's just kind of how we relate to build, the buildings and so forth. But in reality, biblically, the word church means called out ones. And there's our word again, out. 
called out. We're called out from the world, of course, but we're also called to go out into the world to, to proclaim the gospel, to be able to build a, uh, preach that gospel faithfully so that people will come to know Christ, and then, they, then, you, then they're brought in to be discipled. And, and then the whole cycle starts all over again. Now, he gives them some instructions in verse 8 and 9. He says, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. And that's not a staff like, you know, you know, I got an assistant, I got a secretary, I got, you know, my husband. It, it, it's, a, it's staff, you know, you know, staff, one of those. But it's more of like a shepherd's staff. No bag, so no man purse, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and, to not, uh, and not to put on two tunics. Now, what is all this for? He doesn't, it's not that he, they just want him, he wants them lighter. He, he's, he's trying to build in them dependence upon him. He knows that how he's going to provide for them is going to come from the ministries that they are involved in, that God's going to move on people to say, I want to help you. I want to provide for you. I want to help you have something to eat today. I want to give you housing and so forth. That's part of the ministry lessons. Again, this is all about trusting God and about faith, putting you out there where there's no safety net. I learned a long time ago there's, there's no real safety nets. We think there's safety nets, but there's no real safety nets. He's the one that provides. He's our provider. Our job's not our source of money or anything else from the government. Ultimately, he's the source of everything that we have. He's the one that provides, and he doesn't need any of those things to provide for us. Ask Elijah. There's a, there, I mean, ask the children of Israel in the desert. They wandered for 40 years. They didn't have to. It could have been a two-week trip, but they didn't believe. They didn't believe the right report, and God had them out there for a long time, but he was faithful to them, and he provided for them supernaturally. Their sandals didn't wear out. They didn't need to have two pairs of sandals. He could have told them, you're going to go out for 40 years, don't bring an extra pair of sandals. And he, he just loves to do it. So he's saying, don't be, you're going to be dependent upon me. The just shall live by faith. We, we want to call what we do faith sometimes. <laughs> we want to have it all lined up and, and you know, the bank account and the whole thing and everything set up perfectly before we go out. We call it prudence. We call it wisdom. And, and God sometimes, sometimes, sometimes he, lead, he leads us to do those things. But sometimes what we think is prudence and wisdom is walking by sight. Really. And he just says, I, I'm just not going to let you do that. I'm just going to just take everything from you. And you're going out, and you watch what I do. It's, it's huge ministry lessons here. Verse 10. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And this has to do with being content with what you have and to not hurt the people's feelings that want to provide for you. Because the first people that take you in and want to provide for you, let's say it's very meager in terms of what they serve you, the place that, they, that they're offering you, and then you hear of someone else that's interested in providing for you down the street as a little bit bigger house, or you know, they're not, and there's not meatloaf, they're going double-doubles there from in and out or something, or whatever it is, and you're like, ooh, that's a better deal. See, he doesn't want the disciples going, this is a better, find the best deal. Keep moving around till you find the best deal. No, 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 no. Be content with what you have. Don't hurt their feelings. Go, go in that house and be thankful for what I provide. Just stay there. When you go there, stay there until it's time to go. Verse 11. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, 
shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. You ever had anyone do that when you're not agreeing with their wacky doctrine and they take their shoes off and they right in front of your face? I've, I've had that happen. Why do I always have the weird things, you know? But I, I had that happen. But the, the Jews, it was common for them when they would leave the country and they would come back, they would shake their sandals as, as basically saying, I don't want any part of those Gentile countries uh, you know, on me or around me or whatever. And so this is basically Jesus instructing them that recognizing that, that they're under God's judgment in that sense. When they reject this message of the gospel, they're, they're remaining under God's judgment. Because Jesus said, uh, you know, basically that, that men were already condemned because they haven't believed in the name of the Son of God. He didn't come to condemn, but they were already condemned. So they're already under that condemnation. He's trying to help them get out from under that condemnation. So if they don't want to receive that, he's not going to beg people. He's not going to try to talk them into it. He's not going to do any of those things. He's just acknowledging you're remaining in the state that you were before I got here. And, and, and so just know that. And then he adds, assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why is that? Because greater revelation means greater accountability. And Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the gospel of the kingdom from the Son of God that all the prophets pointed to from the Old Testament and all of that. They didn't, that, that revelation, and then the revelation that we have when we preach that gospel, when the, whoever is hearing it could possibly have the knowledge of the whole church and people that they know that have you know come to know him and church history and how God's worked. I mean, that's even more revelation. That's even more accountability and so forth. And so Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the privilege of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the people that reject it, they're going to be worse off than, than those people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 12. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And that word repent is our word metanoia. It means a change of mind there. Repent means a change of mind. And it's a change of mind that results in a change of action. You know, it's like a U-turn. That's why sometimes I would describe it as a U-turn in the road of life. And you, people wondered, have I repented? Well, which way are you going? <laughs> have you turned around and gone the other way? Then you know that you repented. You know you had a change of mind because it has to result in a change of direction. And one of the things I love about this is that they tell people to repent. I mean, there's teaching in, in the church that says, don't do that, don't, don't, don't tell people, that'll offend them. We don't want to tell them that, to, to, to tell them to repent, and they, you know, that might scare the seeker away. No, the most loving and compassionate thing we could ever say to someone that doesn't know Christ is, you need to repent. And explain what that means, of course. You can word it differently. It's just as long as the principle is carried over, and so people, they, sometimes they will pray a prayer and there's no repentance at all. And, and I, don't, I wouldn't bet a nickel if I were a betting man on, on that salvation. There has to be repentance. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, he said, repent and believe the gospel. Paul in Acts chapter 17, he said, God has called all, man every, all men everywhere to repent. You ladies can't say amen to that because it means mankind. Okay, it's not just men it's mankind. Man, God has called all mankind everywhere to repent. That's part of the deal. That's preparing my heart to receive the gift. And so don't be afraid to tell someone to repent. John wasn't, as we're going to see in a moment. Verse 13, And they cast out many demons 
and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the only time in the Gospels we're told that the apostles anointed with oil and, and prayed for the sick. And James talks about it. If you're sick, if there's any sick among you, call for the elders of the church, anoint them with oil. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and so forth. Obviously, we don't need to have oil for God to heal, but they did it there and they, they prayed for the sick. And again, they were walking in this authority that, God, that Jesus had given them. They were walking in everything that he had called them to do, giving them that power and so forth. He hasn't given us any less power than he's given these disciples and apostles. We can lay hands on the sick. They can recover. We can pray for people that have died and they could come back from the dead. God can do that. You know, I went into a hospital once as a new believer and I asked, where do they keep your dead bodies? I did. And she looked at me like how you're looking at me. And, and they said, well, we don't tell people, that we don't, I mean, it was just, she was, this is an information counter, right? You know, it's like, well, um, you know, and um, I said, okay, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm supposed to just pray for someone, and she said, maybe so, <laughs> you know, and, um, but someone did get healed, that I prayed for, so that was great, but you know, we're, we're, we, we never know where God's going to put us here, so God wants to use us in that, and we just have to be open to it. Why, why not just pray first and see what God will do? Why not have faith that he might just directly do it? Sometimes when I pray for people that are, you know, they're, they're going, to, going to be going to the doctor and all of that, and I, I pray God would touch them right then and when they wouldn't even need to go to the doctor. I mean, let's pray for what we believe would be the best and honor God with our faith in that way, and whatever he decides to do, we'll, we'll be content with that. So, great thing. Now, this next section here, Herod, which is Herod Antimus, um, he's, he, we're not going to spend a lot of time in it, but he's going to, John the Baptist is living rent-free in his head, <laughs> as we'll see, and he kind of goes through what happened here. Verse 14, now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So obviously, this had haunted Herod, the fact that he did this, he felt guilty over it, and so forth, and so it's, it's, it's harassing him and haunting him, and, and, and it's amazing. And I'm sure there were demonic forces involved in that. I mean, Satan and his demons hated Herod too, and he didn't know the Lord, but still he piles on even people that don't know the lord you know he comes to steal kill and destroy and so um you know here he is being tormented in this way now we're given the historical account of what happened with herod and john the baptist here in verse 17 for herod himself had sent and laid hold of john and bound him in prison for the sake of herodias the brother his brother philip's wife for he had married her for john said to herod it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife two things here First, John the Baptist believed the leaders of government should be held to a high moral standard. Wow, things have not changed today. <laughs> There's still not a high moral standard. So he, but he, he believes that that should be the case. And number two, he feels like it's his place to tell Herod the truth. And the grammar suggests that he kept telling him this. He kept repeatedly telling him this. And it's okay for us to speak up even those that are in authority, to speak up when things are wrong. Now, we're not the sin police. We're not the Holy Spirit. 
We make, we make lousy uh, a, a spiritual cops and attorneys. God's called us to be spiritual paramedics, not attorneys and lawyers and catching people and like, you know, shaming people for their sin. I, but we need to be salt and light. We need to speak up for the truth at times. There's a time where we stand up and say, that's not right. That's not right. Well, I don't care because I'm not a Christian. I don't believe your Bible. It's still not right. I don't care if you don't believe anything. That, you're still not right what you're doing. And we, we can say that. And John did it, and it's great that he did it. I mean, you may say, well, I mean, it got him killed or whatever, but he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. We need to speak the truth in every situation. Therefore, verse 19, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, and this is like a sensual type dance, it was not good, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he also he also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, I'm sure Rome would have been very interested in this <laughs> because all the land belonged to them. And, and they had allowed the Herods to rule there. They were kind of half Jews. They were Idumean from the place that uh, the descendants of, of Esau had come from and so forth. And so, you know, th- it wasn't his to give. And he's just offering it up. And of course, he's probably drunk, you know, and just shooting off at the mouth and so forth. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. It's a horrible account. John didn't know that this was going to happen. His expectations were a little bit different. Remember, we already had covered where he set his sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the promised one? Are you the one that we're waiting for? Or or should we expect someone else? And Jesus just answered and said what was happening. The the sick are being healed. You know, all these things. The gospel is being preached. And and basically just said, everything that the the Messiah is supposed to be doing, the Messiah is doing. But but John the Baptist had already said that God was going to lay an axe to the root, you know, and really change things up and expose all these religious leaders in the sense that taking them out of power probably and probably taking Rome out of power. He may have thought political Messiah, just how um, many uh, Jews at that time were expecting the Messiah to be a political savior because they hated being under Roman occupation and so forth. It, It is a horrible account. But John the Baptist uh, was the greatest prophet. And, and he's, Jesus said that about him after his servants left on purpose. He said it out of where they couldn't hear it. It, was, it wasn't best for John to hear him say that. You'd think that that'd be great, encouraging, but 
for what, everything that God had revealed to John the Baptist, it was appropriate for him to continue being faithful, being patient, enduring, and so forth with, without that added uh, information. But he wanted everyone else that were listening to hear that this was greater than anybody, greatest prophet in the Old Testament there. But yet, the greatest prophet had his expectations dashed or his didn't, the things didn't happen the way that he thought. That can happen to all of us at times, and it does happen. And, we, and the lesson is we need to be confident in who God is from his word alone. And even if our emotions are telling us something completely different, we need to submit our emotions and our thinking and our mind to God's word and what God says. Sometimes you'll wake up and you won't even, you won't even feel like you're a Christian. You won't even feel like you're a new creation. You, you're under attack or whatever it is. You don't even need to be under attack. You could just have your emotions and your mind going a million different places. We need to be anchored by God's word and say, I don't care what I think. Who cares what I think? That's healthy to say that. You should try that sometime. Who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? I'm going to believe God's word. I'm going to honor him and, and, and do it and act what he wants me to do. And it's a great thing. And it's hard, but he continues to bless us as we, as we do that. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So this is basically they're reporting back from going out in... in uh, six groups of two. So they're rejoicing over this. They're explaining what happened. They're giving a report. That's healthy to do and so forth. And, and then we realize something else in verse 31. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. God, God's fine with vacations. Anyone say amen to that? He's fine. He, he's, he's very fine with, with vacations and rest. He knows that we need rest. And look how busy they were. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Right? One of the things I like about this verse is that it shows us just how much work ministry really is. We saw Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat, physically exhausted. Spiritually, obviously doing great. Emotionally, all those things. But physically, he was absolutely exhausted. And sometimes you go, oh, that's just for the original disciples. That's not for me. No, we're told, do not grow weary by doing good. Um, for we will in due season reap if we don't lose heart. We're supposed to serve. We're supposed to give. We're, it's not just these disciples. We're called to, to be worn out for the Lord, to be exhausted for the Lord. And some people will be very careful guarding against exhaustion when it comes to ministry, but many times they're not careful with everything else. They'll be exhausted for a lot of things, but they won't be exhausted for ministry, of giving their lives away, of serving and care. And, and the most careful, uh, I don't know how to say it, but people are sometimes the most careful when talking about not overdoing it with ministry. And there's a point, obviously, where we can be doing things that God hasn't called us to do, and, and we have to be led by the Spirit. All of that's true. But I love the fact that they were serving and Jesus was okay with it. He knew it. He, he, he wanted that. He knew this was important for the, the people that were receiving their ministry, of course, but also for them. It was okay for them to work hard. It was okay for them to be so busy serving that they didn't even have time to eat at times. And I don't miss too many meals. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's okay to miss a meal because you're serving and you're giving your life away. I want to encourage you this morning. And I'm talking to me too. 
Labor to the point of exhaustion when God leads you to do it. And you won't be wasting anything. You, you won't, because remember, these are eternal things. Sometimes we can labor for things that are temporal, that are passing away, that are going to be burned up when, this, when the new heaven and the new earth are created. But we will not be worn out for the things of the Lord. And it's an exhortation for us. You look at the end of the book of Romans, and you look who Paul thanks for co-laboring with him. Most of them were women, especially on women, um, Women's Day. Mother's Day, we need to acknowledge that. I mean, that's an amazing ministry, thankless ministry. If you got paid by the hour, oh, man, <laughs> be millionaires. So he wants us to sacrifice, to give. You can't be like Jesus without serving because Jesus is a servant. And that, has, that, that looks differently for all of us. I recognize that. I get it. But, but he leads us to give and to give and to give, and we don't get the end of our lives. I've, I've been with people on their deathbed. I've never seen someone that was sacrificially giving their life away for the Lord look back with regrets and think, man, I just wish I would have been playing more video games. You know, I wish I would have been watching Jeopardy more and having it expose how, uh, you know, ignorant I am, you know. But they, they want to wish they could have done more. I wish I could have done more for the Lord. I wish I could have made a greater difference. And, and so it's encouraging for us to see that. But the, yet there still is rest. There still is rest. And maybe that might be a message to someone else here, that you need rest. You need to have adequate rest. There's a time for it. And, and Jesus knows it. It was his idea. They weren't, and I'm surprised that it was, just knowing these disciples, I'm surprised they weren't asking, them, can we go on a vacation now? Come on. Maybe they were. I don't know, but it's not revealed. He comes up with the idea, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. And we're going to see what a while means. <laughs> Look at verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. There it is. Ah, rest. Floating along by ourselves. Solitude. But then verse 33 happens. But the multitude saw them <laughs> departing and knew him. And many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. You can see on the Sea of Galilee, you can see it's, you know, 15 miles long and seven miles across. You can see there. They arrived before them, before they got there, and came together. Now you're, thinking, you're in the boat, just thinking you're the disciples. You're like, yes, this is great. Maybe you're not paying attention to all the crowds running you know, around one side, you know, and you're like, oh, yes, rest and all that, and you get there, and they're there. You know, like, yeah, you're all excited, you know. They have no idea how tired you are. They have no idea that you haven't eaten very much, that you've been going and going and going. They're all just completely ready. Their vacation was as long as a boat ride, you know, People don't know what we're going through when they need help. They don't know how tired you are. They don't know what you've been going. They don't know that you've been up with your baby last night. They don't know that you're going through this or that. And, and, and they, still need, they still need help. And the great thing about it is God's grace is always sufficient to help us. And when we think we can't give out any more, he gives us grace to serve more. And it's It's beautiful. God wants us to give our best in serving even when we're exhausted. And we can do that because what we're giving out is not from us in the first place. So it's just more of this endless supply of grace and love and ministry and spiritual gifts and all of that coming anyway from him all the time, even when we're not tired. So it's not going to change when we are tired. And look at Jesus' great heart in verse 34. 
And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. Jesus didn't take a vacation from being compassionate. He was moved with compassion. The disciples were moved with disappointment. No vacation's over. But he was moved with compassion. And then it gives the reason because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Jesus wants every person to have him as their shepherd. He knows they need it. Every Muslim, every terrorist, every single person in this world, people that we hate in our hearts and we're honest with ourselves that we don't like, he wants to be their savior, he wants to be their shepherd, and he wants us to be involved in that as he leads us. He knows that we need shepherds and he knows, what what does he do? He teaches them. Oh, they need a preacher that's going to get them riled up and get them fired up and get them all jacked up and all of that. And no, he teaches them. He teaches them. He teaches them they need teaching. That's what they need. Verse 35. When the day was now far spent, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Thanks, disciples. I didn't know what time it was. Send them away and they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. First of all, why are you telling him what to do? Does, it, does he have a bad track record of knowing what to do in situations? Why are you? But, but then, he, but then he said they send them, they have the ministry of, they have send them away ministries that they're the, they're the president, <laughs> the leaders of. They're the board members of send them away ministries. We've seen this before. They could have bumper stickers. Send them away ministries. You know, www.sendthemaway.com, you know. Send them, that's their answer to everything. We didn't get a vacation. We just got a boat ride. You know, I'm tired. Just send them away, Jesus. Just, you know, we're your counselor in this. You need to listen to us. Send them away. And, you know, they're not moved with compassion at all. They just, just they're moved with sending them away. You know, just go. We, we're tired. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. More ministry lessons. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii, which is eight months worth of wages, worth of bread and give them something to eat but he said to them how many loaves do you have go and see and when they found out they said five and two fish now, these are very small loaves you think of an english muffin or something you know just a small little loaf there was a boy we're told in another gospel that just had his lunch this is the boy's lunch here so he's now it's more lessons about dependence upon the lord because in matthew he says give them to me and that's the lesson what we have what we're limited in we need to get it to him get it to him so that he can multiply it as only he can this miracle is the only miracle besides the resurrection that's mentioned in all four gospels it's very very important it's huge ministry lesson and an instruction for us that we can trust him to provide he's not limited by a job he's not limited by a bank account he's not definitely not limited by the stock market he, wants, he can provide any way. He can just make money appear in your bank account. We don't know what happened. There's, there's money in your account now, and there wasn't. You know, I mean, he could, do, he could do anything he wants. He could have a whole pile of money just sitting on your porch or whatever and, and allow no one to steal it. <laughs> and he can do anything. We need to honor him and trust him. Then he commanded them to, sit, them to make them sit all down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. So he does all things decently, and in order 
and they ate on the ground, and that's where they ate. They didn't sit at chairs in this culture. They, they didn't do that. They sat reclined at tables. So he has them sit down. It's like preparing them for a, for a feast. And I'm sure the disciples are going, maybe they're, he's having them sit them down to break the news to them that we don't have any food. Uh, you know, what's he doing here? And, and, and so it says in verse 41, and when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. Now the tenses there are continuously. He continuously gave them to the disciples and continuously set before them and the two fish was divided among them. So he was just multiplying and they were just taking it from him and he's just multiplying, just creating things out of nothing, just dividing and creating things out of nothing. And notice in verse 42, and they all ate and were filled. And the filled word really means glutted. And none of us can relate to that. I know that's another church, right? That's not us. We can't relate to that, not even at Thanksgiving when we unbutton our, is that just me or? No, I don't think so. We, we eat and they were filled, filled. And there was left over. God is so good at providing. There's not just meeting the need. He gives more than we need. So often he does that. This is ministry lessons for them. And they took up 12 baskets. Hmm, 12 where have I seen 12 before? Oh, the disciples. 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. That doesn't count women and children. So this could be 10,000 people here. Huge, massive uh, provision and miracle here. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he deserted departed to a mountain to pray notice it says he made his disciples get into the boat they didn't want to we remember a storm not too long ago you know i'm not getting in there without you you know i mean but he made them again he's stretching them they had a storm with him in the in the boat that was stretching that they learned the lesson now he's telling them to go out in the boat without him that's see it's a little bit more it's a little bit harder a little bit more he's going to be just as faithful as he ever was and they're going to see the glory of God as a result of it. When he puts us in impossible situations to do what only he can do, when he does those things, it's the glory of God. I remember thinking, I don't want to be a senior pastor, but if I ever am a senior pastor, I want to plant a church because I want to see the glory of God and him provide and so forth. Now, I've gone back on that thought a few times over the years, like, oh man, this is a lot harder than I thought. But I have seen the glory of God and his faithfulness and and. In our lives, too, he wants to demonstrate the, his glory by being faithful to us and stretching us in these situations. Now, in John, John's the only one that elaborates on what was going on here, but we'll see it when we get to John, but they, you know, they had wanted to make him, he perceived that they had wanted him to make him king by force. And so it could be that he sent them away and for one of the other reasons of possibly it might have been dangerous for them. I don't know, but he sent them away. He goes... Uh, departs to a mountain to pray and we're told now when evening came the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land and when he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea and could and could have and would have passed him passed them by so they're in the middle of the sea john tells us that they'd already rowed three or four miles now and they're hitting a headwind so that's what's keeping him there. He tells us that the wind was against them. And we're told that 
Jesus saw them straining at rowing with a headwind. And the word straining is the word from which you get our word torture. They were just really having a hard time rowing and rowing and rowing and so forth. And he sees them, and it's night, so it's supernatural that he can see them there while he's up on the mountain. No doubt he's praying for them, among other things, but, but I'm sure he's praying for them. We're told there that it was the fourth watch. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So we're told that they've been rowing for so many hours because they, you know, the evening came when they were already in the middle of the sea. So they're on the, in the middle of the sea when evening had, had came. We're told that in verse 47. It says, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. So it took a while to get to the sea. So they started before it got dark. Now it's three, between 3 and 6 in the morning. They've been out there for 8 or 9 hours rowing and not getting to the place where they were supposed to go. You can imagine how frustrating that is. Not only did we not get a vacation, and then we had all this other stuff happen. We saw, the, we saw this amazing miracle and so forth, but I'm exhausted. I'm tired of going against this wind. But to their credit, they were obeying. They were going forward and so forth. And, 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 you know, and it's, it's a great thing that, that they were doing. But we're told there that, that uh, he was walking on the sea and would have passed them by. What does that mean? I don't know. It could mean that he didn't, he didn't need the boat to get to the other side. He, would have, he didn't need it. He could have just passed them by. Um, I have no idea what that... Well, I'll have to ask Mark someday, John Mark, when we get to heaven. Um, but he didn't need the boat, obviously, to keep walking and make it to the other side. Verse 49, And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, we're, we've already looked at the account. This is where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out onto the water. Maybe thinking that he might not do that. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and then he hears, come. <laughs> you know, and this isn't just this tiny little boat. He has to climb down. That's plenty of time to think. What, am I, what did I just say right now? Um, this is not looking good, potentially. So, you know, we're told that when he saw that the wind was boisterous and was afraid, he began to sink. He got his eyes off the Lord onto his circumstances, a great ministry lesson as well. And then he cried out, Lord, save me. And so Jesus stretched out his hand and brought him back into the boat and so forth and rebuked his lack of faith. Verse 51. Then when he went in, up into the boat to them and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and, mar and marveled. I bet. I bet they marveled just to see him walking, because thought he was a ghost. You know, they had no idea. He didn't even need a boat at all to get to them. And then he's there. He's walking on the water. I mean, they already have said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? You know, maybe the waves obeyed him again and didn't let him sink. Maybe he suspended gravity. Maybe he just levitated and just kind of walked on the water. I mean, we have no idea how he accomplished it, but the fact is he did it. And, and, and he showed that he's... He's the Lord. He's the Lord God, you know, of everyone there. It's amazing, amazing um, testimony of his deity. <clears throat> Verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Remember the parable of the soils? So their hearts had become hardened there, and they couldn't understand. They couldn't understand about the loaves and what it meant, the significance of it, because of their hearts. Again, what God wants to do in our lives can be hindered, his word being planted in our hearts because of how our hearts are. And we need to have hearts that 
are good soil for him to plant his word in. Verse 53, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the, the whole surrounding region, and began to worry about, carry about on beds those who were sick to whoever they heard he was. To wherever they heard he was. Verse 56, Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or in the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just, they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. So he was just proving he was the Messiah, demonstrating that he was who he said he was, who prophet, the prophet said he would be, because said, they said that he would be doing those types of things when he, when he came. So it's a beautiful picture of this wonderful promised Messiah. So we'll stop there. Don't be stumbled by storms. Don't be stumbled that they get more and more difficult. <laughs> And there's more lessons to learn through them. He wants to challenge our faith. He wants to grow our faith. And let's be willing to be exhausted for eternal things as he leads us and as he guides us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this feast of your word. Thank you, Lord, how you've used it in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be servants and to be willing to serve and give our lives over and give our lives away for your purposes. We don't want to try to save our lives. We want to lose our lives for your sake. And we recognize, Father, that the abundant life that Jesus provides is a life that, that, gives, that gives and serves. So we pray, Lord, you continue to make us into the servants that you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, when we go through storms and those that are going through storms right now, I pray, Lord, that you'd be their strength, that they would honor you with their faith, that they would trust you, that they would trust your word, and they would depend upon you, Lord. Help us to help them and to serve them as they go through these times that are difficult. We thank you for the family we get to enjoy here. We pray, Lord, that you continue to build your church as you see fit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.